0: Welcome to The Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash Times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book, The Fire Next Time, and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care so thank you all for listening we're doing this very special ukraine series and today i have romeo on with me Uh, he's going to explain uh why he's on with me and what we're about to do with the upcoming few i don't know how many episodes we haven't actually decided yet but uh romeo can you start with some introductions that's okay
1: sure um as uh, joey said i'm romeo kakratsky i'm a journalist here in ukraine i was actually born in ukraine but i was raised in new york so If you're wondering why I don't have a strong Slavic accent, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) I moved back to Ukraine um, after the seizure of Crimea uh, back in March 2014. Uh, And I've been here ever since, basically working as an English language journalist in Ukraine. Currently, I'm the managing editor of the English language news outlet, The New Voice of Ukraine. And I am the co-host of the Ukraine Without Hype podcast, uh, which you guys can also listen to. (laughs) Um, you guys should definitely listen to it. Yeah, we we, we try to, to keep people informed as, as best we can. Uh, and yeah, I'm for uh, those of Joey's listeners who may not be too familiar with me. I'm uh, a pretty open leftist <laughs> as well. Um, just to immediately push back against any uh, possible accusations that I am some kind of plant. No, I've, I've been a Marxist since I was 13 years old. I've heard capital like three <laughs> times. So don't, don't come at me with that.
0: Uh, I've, I've, yeah, I'm have I've, sure, I mean, you probably can guess, but I've received all kinds of accusations as well. So at this point, I just got used to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, as it happens, I mean, honestly, when, I, when we said Thursday, uh, which is Thursday, March uh, 24, 2022 for the record, uh, as it happens, it's exactly a month uh, since the most le- uh, recent invasion, since the upgrade from the recent, uh, the, uh, how do you say it? <laughs> from We call it an all-out invasion here. What do you call it? An all-out invasion. There you go. Well, there you go. An all-out invasion. Uh, it's been exactly a month. So I guess what we can do, if that's okay with you, is get some reflections on your part on this past uh this past month of of nightmares and yeah we'll just take it from there after that
1: sure um do you want to ask questions or do you want me to just start talking
0: but the question i guess would be i mean specifically um there will be like a political dimension to the question, then a person dimension to the question, and I mean, obviously they're linked, but I guess a political one to start with, uh, how would you describe the situation as it is uh, right now, and how has it changed, I guess?
1: I mean, the most obvious thing is, is we're still fighting uh, a month in. When the Russians first came in, they thought they would take Kiev in, like, 72 hours. Obviously, that hasn't happened. Uh, they've managed to occupy just one Uh, provincial capital, uh, and that is Kherson, and they have a couple of other small towns and villages in the southern region of Ukraine as well occupied. But nothing close to what the Russians had hoped to accomplish. Uh, And Ukraine has proven itself to be, at this point, more than a peer for the Russian military, which is collapsing in itself. Uh, The Russian rhetoric uh, and propaganda of Denazification has proven to be completely false, as uh, you can watch any number of Russian media sources and, and Russian officials use explicitly fascist terminology to talk about their uh, invasion of Ukraine, which they still deny it's an invasion. Uh, so <laughs> the world has seen that the, the Russians' claim to anti-fascism is, quite frankly, just projection and a lie. They are the ones uh, using fascist methods to uh, invade, repress, and reconquer uh, Ukraine, which they see as a uh, recalcitrant colonial subject, basically. Um, Their kind of desire to recapture Ukraine and and to force the Ukrainians into loving the Russians has completely failed. Their propaganda has failed in Ukraine. They haven't been able to set up any puppet authorities uh, like they had in, in Donetsk and Luhansk, um, and just overall, they've they've basically just fallen flat in their ass in, in every single aspect of this invasion, um, militarily, politically, economically, in every in every single way.
0: It's it is quite extraordinary. I mean, since it is a month ago now um, that it started i remember it very well i was in i was visiting visiting a some a friend of mine in paris and by the morning i woke up and obviously i saw the news and then by that afternoon there were already huge protests um in paris that i attended um and honestly since then it's been I'll, i'll probably i'll try and write some kind of blog post or essay or something putting these thoughts a bit more coherently together but it's been a mix of horror obviously um surprise at times uh sometimes positive surprise i would say as well and a lot of just uh being astonished that a they could be this bad in terms of just preparation just in terms of symbolism also being this bad being this bad at disinformation because they were slightly better at it in syria and they still are um And it really seems, as you said, like we saw saw all of those intel and reports and whatnot pretty early on that they expected, Putin expected himself, that basically Kiev would fall within, what, 48 hours or 72 hours, as you said. And clearly that did not happen. But what's incredible, I mean, among many things, is that even the symbolism, even like using a Z, which is like one stroke away from a swastika, Using uh, the language that they're using on state television, uh, which we can still see uh, all the time, everything from threatening to drop a nuclear bomb on 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 Warsaw to calling uh, EU or something along—I forgot what that patriarch said—something satanic, gay pride, something as as, you know, whatever. Um, All of those, all of those. like, that, that's not the sort of effort that you would make if you had an external audience to persuade, really, which kind of shows that they did not plan it as, as well as they may have otherwise, and which probably goes back to this being es- essentially Putin's idea. More recently, uh, not more recently, but obviously we, uh, parallel to all of this, to the battlefields although i don't like to call it that to to the you know the the conflict zones which again i don't like i do not like to call it them we're also obviously seeing in parallel a at the same time a uh, sizable influx of refugees from ukraine to uh, mostly to eastern other parts of eastern europe and some to a lesser extent in western europe as well H- have you seen and you yourself uh, obviously feel free to speak to us as much as you want on that you don't have to mention details or anything but how have you, how can you describe at least the this aspect, like the displacement, the just having to move around all the time? I've seen journalists having to move like a dozen times, for example, you know, that sort of thing.
1: I mean, I'll get to the personal bit, but basically like about half the country right now is internally displaced. I know the, the official numbers are a, a bit lower. Um, like officially it's like 3.5 million or four have fled beyond the borders. Um, while there's like 12 million or something internally displaced but i think unofficially it's it, it's about half the country um because a lot of and ukraine needs,
0: has about 40 something right
1: yeah i mean that that census is really old it's probably a little lower 39 38 but we haven't had a census since 2003 so it's hard to tell <laughs> um but uh, like basically it's it's a lot of people um it's the entire right bank of the country has has more or less stopped working um, because a lot of these cities that they attacked are the like border cities that border Belarus and Russia. Um, Kharkiv especially is, is a huge one. Um, and it was a major driver of um, economic development. As a result, there's a lot of people living there. Um, and all of those are left. Half of Kiev, which typically has population around 4 million, um, has fled as well. It's it's down to um, I think like a million and a half to two million people. Obviously, it's it's hard to say in wartime exact numbers, um, but there's just massive, massive disruption, and I mean, it's hard to understate just how much of an ef- of an effect that has on people's lives. Every apartment um, on the like. West of the Dnieper, basically, is completely booked. Um, There are millions of people right now that that don't have jobs and are basically living off savings or donations because how can they work? Um, Despite, like, the country is trying to open up, but again, we're we're talking about millions and millions of displaced people. And that's not even talking about the guys that that went abroad. Um, Though notably, because Ukraine's martial law Prevented all males, basically anyone from anyone male from the age of like sixteen to, to um, sixty or eighty or something like this is not allowed to to leave Ukraine. So a lot of the refugees that have left are just women and children because there's they're the only ones that are being allowed to go, basically, um, and everyone else is in, internally displaced. Um, I don't know; it's it's hard to describe just how eerie it is that half the country has basically decamped. Um, I don't think the modern world has seen a migration quite on this scale. Um, again, Ukraine is, has a much higher population than um, most of the countries that have seen conflict in, in the modern era. Uh, we're like the second or third biggest country in Europe uh, by population size. So it's it's a complete disruption of absolutely everything, really. Um, one saving maybe grace is that uh, a lot of people have been returning to their villages and their towns um, because prior Ukraine has seen a, a very strong wave of um, urbanization where uh, like basically everyone except the elderly would leave their, their tiny little villages or towns and go to cities like Kiev or Kharkiv or Mariupol or anywhere that had work to be found. Um, yeah. And yeah, now people are kind of going back to those places because they usually have like a grandmother or a grandfather or a home or something um, that they can actually stay in, which which is one of the biggest issues. And um, that's not even touching the the refugee centers um, that have been set up in a lot of cities because, uh, quite frankly, refugee camps are never pretty in any circumstance. And um, Ukraine, while not dirt poor, um, we're not like. A, a completely bereft economic country. Uh, Ukraine's economy was actually growing pretty steadily up until the invasion um it, we're still not a developed nation by any sense. So you can imagine that the um, the, the circumstances in these refugee camps uh, within the country are not great though obviously there's not a lot of reporting out of them um, I think for 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 clear reasons the Ukrainian government doesn't want to um, show that and, and demoralize people of course, or dissuade them from evacuating, God forbid, um, and Western journalists typically have more exciting things to worry about. Um, though, from what I've seen, the the refugee camp situations in Europe are, are not that much better. Um, uh, and that's right, I wanted to also mention the the state of refugees kind of outside the question, though I don't really like using the word refugees because for most of these people that are going to come, they're going to come home once the war is over. Um, I prefer using the term evacuees because these are people evacuating for what everyone hopes is not going to last more than like a, a couple of more months. No one is looking to build a new life in Europe. And um, the very few people are like talking about like settling in Western European countries to, to, like quiet all the um all the xenophobes that worry about masses of immigrants or whatever the the grand grand majority of ukrainians just want to go back home um and of course what what they're going to see when they come back home is a different question but that is the hope that everyone is is going to come home um and no one is is looking to settle abroad uh in in any sense we have a pretty strong connection um to our land here
0: yeah and thanks for that and if I may, like more personal question, like how have you, how have you had to deal with it in the past month? Um, I mean, for me,
1: I've I, I'm I'm a little lucky here, because uh, I'm living in my hometown of Vinitsa, which is um, a provincial capital about 300 kilometers southwest of Kiev. It's about three and a half hours drive in peacetime, um, bit bit longer now. Um, but luckily, my my great grandfather built a house after World War II here. Um, and I have a house to stay with. Obviously, I'm um, staying here with my wife and a couple of friends that also evacuated um, from Kiev with me. And so in a lot of respects, we're a lot luckier because Vyensa is basically completely safe. Uh, we've been hit by missile strikes a couple of times, but those have mostly been military targets. Um, and none of them have struck any like residential areas within the city or anything like that. Um, the Russians are nowhere close to, to shelling us or anything um so there's there's nothing much to worry about on on that front and as a result life in Vienna is starting actually to normalize like the restaurants are opening up the hookah bars are opening up um they've recently allowed the sale of beer again um alcohol was banned for a month um uh, and they've mm-hmm. recently allowed the, the sale of beer again here so convenience of things are more or less calm and i've been able to have like kind of a semblance of a normal life um though obviously it's a bit cramped and um we're also hosting evacuees whenever they they come through and they need a place to to stay um so i can't really complain there's a lot of people that i've had it a lot worse that don't have like a house to go back to a village to go back to or, or anything and basically they have to go through hostels and these refugee centers and um, relying the kindness of strangers for you know an un- unspecified amount of time. Uh, so I can't I can't really say much there. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've been able to make a few trips back to Kiev to deliver supplies. Um, I have a car, so that really helps out. And it's been fine. It's not been the best time, as you can imagine. Shh. Um, sure, but yes. it's been been much better than a lot of uh, what a lot of people have experienced.
0: Great, yeah. We um, had mentioned some time ago uh, like even colleagues of yours have had to, I mean, you mentioned it now again, so maybe you can expand on this a bit if that's okay. I just want to try and give a sense uh, to listeners that what the media working landscape is right now, uh most folks will have some kind of rough idea i suppose like you know they would say well it's obviously bad probably you'd have to move you know etc 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 but i don't know if you can give us some examples maybe just to so it's not very abstract for listeners um
1: what has the main real effect is obviously Kyiv as the capital was the center of everything. It was the center of Ukrainian econo- economic life and obviously the center of the media landscape as well. Mm-hmm. Um, most outlets reported out of Kyiv and typically speaking here, um, like provincial reporting um, was pretty lackluster. You usually have to rely on local affiliates for that. So now yeah. everyone's left Kyiv and Kyiv reporting from Kyiv now is seen as kind of this, um, pretty dangerous thing, though I, I know a couple of journalists who've still stayed in in the city um, for, you know, whatever reasons they have but otherwise mostly if you are, like, in the western part of the country um, even in Vienna, you're more or less safe um, and once you can find a place to set your laptop down and continue working you can keep doing that um, the Ukrainian government has been pretty connected to the media. Um, I won't say that they've been entirely transparent because one of the big effects on reporting um, that I think everyone, every every journalist in Ukraine has encountered is the more or less complete information blackout uh, on the Ukrainian army, troop movements, um, the results of battles, whether battles have been held, um, casualties, everything is in complete blackout, which... As a journalist, is a little bit annoying, but as a Ukrainian, I'm glad to see because whenever the Russians have any kind of information that there's been any kind of Ukrainians moving somewhere, they tend to hit that place with a missile strike. So obviously, the less information available is better, though obviously from a reporting perspective, that does complicate work a bit. Um, the real danger has come from um, the journalists that are, have been brave enough to not just stay in Kiev or anything, but to go beyond, to go into the conflict zones. Um, two of my colleagues that I used to work at, um, at Hermansky, which is a, uh, independent Ukrainian news outlet, um, they were captured, one of them, luckily, um, Victoria Roshino has been recently released, um, but according to her outlet, she was, uh, captured by the FSB and then forced to make a, uh, video where she basically had to, like, say, oh, the Russians are fine, they, they haven't done anything bad, the Ukrainians are evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, though obviously she recanted that the second she released her um, and then another um, journalist that, that I used to work with um Max is still currently missing uh he disappeared on the 11th reporting um, somewhere near Kiev I believe and he's been out of content since uh, since then and on top of that we've had at least six journalists killed a number of producers killed fixers um one of our mps uh why A wife of one of our MPs um, was killed by Russian shelling. Um, A Russian journalist was killed by Russian shelling um, that had been working for The Insider, uh, which is a Russian independent news outlet here in Ukraine. Not in Ukraine, but um, she was reporting from Ukraine. So for those people brave enough to actually go into the conflict zones, obviously their life expectancies are are unfortunately um, not what you would hope. Uh, and it definitely does raise the danger and, and brings the war home a lot harder when, you know, I hear about people that I've worked with, that I've like sat next to and, you know, shared coffee with and gossiped with, when I've heard they're disappeared or captured or God knows what else. Um, and that's that's pretty disheartening. Um, but again, I don't feel any danger, like, personally sitting here in, in Vienza or... Um, like a lot of uh, my colleagues are in Lviv or something, and they're also fine. So if you're not really within the conflict zone or within the range of Russian artillery, um, there's not too much to worry about.
0: Yeah, like the, the furthest away from Russia, the safer, more or less. Basically, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's what it is. You know, <laughs> It is like that. And I mean, speaking of that, there is the question of, I mean, for me, I I feel like I I got a good sense of that answer, of that question. Like, you know, why is this even happening? Why is Putin even doing this and so on, just because I've been obsessively reading for the past month. But for um, listeners who have a better relationship with their mental health and have not been reading reading as much as I have, what would you, how would you even try and explain the why of, of it all? Honestly, it's pretty
1: simple. Russia is a fading imperial power that has a leader with delusions of grandeur, delusions of being one of the great men of history. Um, And he has decided with, as he's getting older, um, there's no obvious successor yet. um, He has decided that he wanted to make his place in the history books by reuniting Russia and to imperial Russia. Uh, that includes basically Belarus and Ukraine. These are two um, areas that uh, Russia has always seen as part of Russia. They don't acknowledge that these are independent places with their own culture, with their own language. They've always seen it as a core integral part of Russia. And to a lesser extent, um, that extends to the Baltics. To an even lesser extent, this extends to Poland. But specifically, Ukraine uh, and Belarus. And He's already gotten Belarus after um, Lukashenko botched his um, <laughs> vote rigging uh, a couple of years back. He lost all of his support from the West. Um, prior to that, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, had done this very delicate balancing act where he seemed as a more reasonable dictator than Poon, and he was able to uh, take advantage of both Russian largesse, but... Um, stay out of the West's way just enough to not seem like a threat. Until, of course, um, there there was a popular uprising um, movement against them, which was entirely peaceful. And uh, right before an election, an election that he lost, uh, of course, he rigged it so poorly that not only did he lose the election, he was not able to convince anyone else that he had won the election as opposed to all of the other elections that Belarus had had and that Lukashenko had rigged up until that point. And once he'd lost all of his, um, all of his ability to uh, pander to Western interests, he had nowhere else to go and no other support than Russia. And that resulted in Putin taking advantage of this. Um, he has much more deeply integrated Belarus into the Russian structure. Not quite um, to the point of annexing it, but... Uh, enough that he feels entirely comfortable just sending troops there and they're doing whatever they want in Belarus and Lukashenko has no say or influence over um, what the Russians do on his territory. Once he had that, um, he had the perfect kind of opportunity to strike Ukraine and he was never going to get a better one Um, because as long as Lukashenko had a veneer of independence, he could say well, we aren't going to allow our country to be used as a staging ground for an invasion. Once he lost that, well, that's all of Ukraine's northern border basically undefended, and specifically it means that there is a very short road to Kiev. Kiev is about, not far, I want to say maybe 50 kilometers from the Belarusian border. It's very close. It's very, very close. Um, You have to go through Chernobyl, of course, but if you're not afraid of a little radiation poisoning, that's not much. And it seems like the Russians... Are fine with that, uh, so he took advantage. He started staging um, a bunch of troops in Montreal, uh up in um, up on the Belarusian border, uh, claiming it was all for exercises, as as the Russians always do. Um, and then he struck once he felt that that mobilization had completed for his three day operation. Um, and again, the why is simply because the timing was right. Putin's got delusions of grandeur and Russia's an imperial state that sees Ukraine as a colonial subject. Put those together. And it's at that point, you're not asking why did he invade? You're asking, um, maybe why did he take so long to invade? Because one of the questions that I've had is why didn't they follow up on their, you know, partial invasion in 2014 when they had already started? Um, and I've gotten conflicting answers on that. Um, but we can see that Putin has always planned to invade Ukraine. He's always wanted to return Ukraine. There was a uh, speech, or not a speech, a recorded interview I watched um, with Putin when he was still a uh, mayoral advisor in uh, Saint Petersburg from 1991. And uh, when asked about, uh, you know, what what does he think of um, the Soviet leaders? Like, what does he think of Lenin and Stalin? Now that uh, at the time they were removing the pictures of the Soviet leaders from the like governmental offices. Um, and he was asked what he thought about this, and he gave an answer in 1991 that was more or less identical to what he said in his speech a couple of days prior to the invasion, which is he believes the Bolsheviks basically ruined Russia by giving all of these provinces um, independence or at least making them national republics. Uh, so we can tell by that that he has always considered the... Uh, independence, or even minor independence of places like um, the stans and like uh, Belarus and Ukraine, to be aberrations, to be unnatural, and everything should be united under the the crown of
0: Muscovy. It's this is the the bit that I was trying to hint at before, like the um, trying to understand this aspect of it. One of the one of the ways I could because obviously, I mean, maybe not obviously for those who don't know, but. I spent a lot of time uh, covering Syria. I'm from Lebanon, neighboring country. I, 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 I spent a lot of time in 2016, most of 2016 from what I can remember. Basically video calling, kind of like we're doing now. Uh, with journalists, mostly in eastern Aleppo at the time, and you know the the bombs in the background and stuff like that. So a lot, a lot, a lot of what has been happening in the past month. Past month, obviously, for me, I've had to also just try and pace myself so as not to trigger uh, some kind of PTSD or whatever. And so far, surprisingly, managing. Um, but at the same time, the reason I brought this up is because there were all of those things that. Early on and by early on I mean like in the days uh, f- preceding the full-on invasion the speech that he gave which was uh, we later discovered was pre-recorded the humiliation of his s- spy chief whatever the fuck he's called um, the 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 performativity of it all all of that stuff I, I sort of uh, for me it was all very um, deja vu like it was very uh, he there was there wasn't this kind of ideological, uh conviction when it comes to syria with syria backing assad was much more straightforward he saw an opportunity and he took it it's kind of most much more simpler than that it's not part of like the greater russian empire or whatever you know it was more like a real politic quote unquote calculation if you want and i have a lot of thoughts on that but it's fine for now the first episode, anyway, of the series, uh, the Ukraine series, as I'm very uncreatively ca- calling it, was with uh, Leila Shami, who is a Syrian uh, writer, good friend of mine, and we've both been following Ukraine quite obsessively through that lens in many ways. Um, one of the other differences, and maybe here I can get some of your, your thoughts on this, um, the disinformation aspect, the online disinformation aspect, Um in what they so russia intervened officially intervened in syria in 2015 and so about a year after the annexation of crimea some of the tactics that were used in syria from 2015 were pretty similar to the ones that they've been using in ukraine since 2014 often pretty much recycled Uh, they have this thing which is For those who don't know, they sort of don't believe it because they expect a state to be more sophisticated for some reason. But they they are actually, it's pretty common for them to copy-paste social media conspiracy theories to actually cite random bloggers as evidence. Like they actually do this all the time and people are surprised by this when they don't know it. Um, So there's that aspect. But more recently, as in this uh, time around, the past month, I just can't help but noticing that Probably because this was almost entirely Putin's idea and they did not plan it maybe as carefully as they would have otherwise or I don't don't know what it is exactly. But even by the very clumsy standard of online Russian disinformation, it's been even clumsier. And to be honest with you, I don't really have a good explanation for this. I don't know if you do. Uh, Maybe just the Ukrainians have been much better at speaking to the media uh, because they've had eight years of basically preparing for this. Uh, that's that's kind of like my working theory.
1: That is a big part of it. I mean, when the Western world started to talk about disinformation, um, which what they call fake news, which I always found to be like a weird kind of way of phrasing it. Disinformation isn't a new tactic, yeah. um, but the Western world really only took it started taking that seriously in fourteen. Um, when Russia first invaded uh, and when they, you know, seized Crimea and, and seized um, Luhansk and Donetsk. And Ukrainians were actually kind of at the forefront of confronting that at the time. Uh, because being former colonial subjects of Russia, we are incredibly well equipped to counter their bullshit because a lot of the, what they say and have said they have been saying for literal centuries. You can find um, Russian aristocrats grumbling about um, Ukrainian independence from the 19th century, maybe the 18th century, and and even behind that because, again, Russians don't really believe that Ukraine and Ukrainians are a separate people and a separate nation um, and have any desires outside of um, Moscow. They, They simply for whatever reason don't accept it don't comprehend it and are incapable of comprehending it um I think a lot of the clumsiness that we've been seeing in terms of their um, media push has just been because they can't really push against Ukrainian narratives they don't understand where we're coming from and as a result they don't they can't respond to them they can only push really like poorly thought out, um, conspiracy garbage like we have bioweapons labs mm-hmm. or we're developing nukes or where uh, we have chemical one, weapons stored
0: didn't one russian mp even say that ukraine made covid or something like two days ago like,
1: yeah I mean, exactly like yeah. just just complete complete garbage because they can't they can't talk about um the the whole independence aspect they they can't um push back against, like, Ukraine saying, oh, you know, we have a separate language, because they don't understand. They they, they really don't. It does not, it's not a part of their worldview that they can really comprehend. Um, and, you know, people very often have trouble understanding that, because they're like, well, can't the Russians, like, talk to Ukrainians? Well, you'd think they can. You'd think they really could just talk to us, watch our media, anything. Um, we're right there. But but no, they they are incapable of doing that. To um, there was a, a th- Twitter thread I was reading the other day about um, a uh, Ukrainian talking about um, some friends he had um, in Russia that contacted him shortly after the invasion. He was like, "Hey, you guys, what what are you guys doing? Why are you like fighting back? Don't you want to be free of the West or whatever?" And the Ukrainians like, "What are you talking about? What what West?" What freedom? We are free. We live in a free country. And the Russians are like Nazis control your government. And it's just so blatantly idiotic. Cause it's not like the, the Russians know that Zelensky is Jewish, for example. Um <laughs> they can like that's not a, a secret. It's not some hidden fact from the Russian populace. But again, they are simply incapable of comprehending this. Um and as a result, they're like bullshit that they make up about Ukraine is really easy to drown out. Also, the the quite simple fact that when you invade a country with a, like, symbol that literally looks a stroke off the swastika, as you said, um, and then go on state TV and talk about the necessity of um, cleansing the traitors and the impure to purify the Russian nation, like, that kind of stuff does not lend itself well to good propaganda. <laughs>
0: It really um, doesn't. It really. Does. I, I. I'm, I'm really telling you, I'm. I'm honestly still baffled that they went with a Z. I, I. I just. I. I don't know. Someone should have. I say this knowing that the answer is obviously so, someone did not. But someone should have pointed out that it's very easy to just make a swastika out of a Z. I don't. I don't know why. It, I mean, that's. It's like they gave a present to protesters, like pro ukraine protesters throughout the world. Now I, I'm saying it all the time. Just people putting a Z and then adding a stroke to it. It's just very easy. Uh, it's just one of those but you know symbolically at least or on, on some kind of surface level it just shows that there is this kind of imperial arrogance and obviously subsequent blindness that just doesn't comprehend the people like when we say and you've said it as well that putin actually thought that he would take kiev in a few days and that he they it would be greeted as liber, liberators very george w bush by the way um you know there are all of those um, all of those stories that have come out that sometimes uh, which have again because I've been obsessively reading for the past month and listening to interviews and whatever. Some people have been writing about this for quite some time. Gessen is one of them. There, there is a book by Politovskaya who obviously was assassinated. Uh, I actually don't remember why when when uh, 20 years ago something like that. Very yeah. likely by Kadyrov, from what I understand. Um, and you know there are quite a few people that have been writing specifically about putin but also more generally about uh post-soviet russia i guess you might call it now uh for quite some time now so this isn't exactly a surprise in that sense we cannot as with all of these things we cannot really say we did not know uh again to bring up syria again none of this syria up until maybe now in Ukraine was and to some extent it is one of the most documented conflicts of all time everything almost 24 7 has been live streamed so you have this 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 um issue which is definitely going to stay with us for quite some time unfortunately but just to kind of go back to this a bit now we're a month in um i've for the past month almost to the day like uh, within a couple of days or so We've been reading reports of how unprepared the Russian military has been. We've all, or most people have seen those videos of Ukrainian tractors taking away tanks, Russian tanks. We've seen... um, Anti-fascist traction, is what we call it. (laughs) (laughs) So repeat that, repeat that.
1: Anti-fascist traction.
0: (laughs) Anti-fascist, amazing. So we've all seen those. Uh, We've seen even Russian soldiers uh, being basically filmed and a lot of them saying they did not even know they were in ukraine or like a lot of different things of uh we can definitely see that they're younger on the younger side the russian soldiers we know from a number of experts um uh remind me his name camille something i think glaive camille yeah um that uh actually like for example the russian army is more ethnically diverse than the uh, not that's not the word but like has more of minorities than than uh the average russian population so they're taking a lot of uh, soldiers from ethnic minorities Um, there is this very obvious unless you have this ideological filter which obviously many do that this uh, these are people that are sent to be canon fodder. Uh, even Syrian uh, soldiers are being sent now to be canon fodder. Um, and again, the, there does not seem to be a long term plan. There really does not seem to be one. And this this kind of brings me to the next question, which is the the scarier one in many ways. Like I've I've read and listened to again obsessively a number of interviews by people that clearly know much better than I do. Trying to understand what the logic, if there is any, of Putin might be at this point, and the concerning thing is that he has definitely been more isolated in the past couple of years with COVID. We know this. We've seen those ridiculously long tables. We know that he is paranoid about COVID because he's a rather old guy. We know that his own circle of trustees and advisors, some of them have literally been leaving in the past few weeks. There was his climate envoy, I think, who's now out of Russia. There's a lot of his closest advisors are just not speaking to the press. There are some questions around whether they are really you know, a number of different things that this is not a good thing. This is not a good sign for someone who has this many, you know, not just nukes obviously, but just this much power in general. So I'm wondering like from your from your um, perspective, I guess, how do you how do you see and also at the same time I should say we have seen that the Russian army is struggling like significantly in like they've, they've, I forgot. I don't know the number. The numbers are what almost 10,000 or something like this, which is higher than uh, what they've lost just what
1: they admitted yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The real number is absolutely higher than that.
0: And this is more than like the entirety of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. This is, these are ridiculously high numbers uh, for just a month. And so it's just not, it's just not, like something huge is happening other than the most immediate aspects of it humanitarian etc cetera, etc cetera, that is probably very difficult or maybe too early to tell but i'm i am curious if you have some thoughts on this like where where do you think this can go so
1: i have a lot of things just to to address the latest point why yeah. of putin's kind of instability honestly i think this is not surprising from a materialist standpoint simply because he is getting older um and Russia is a dictatorship where what he says goes a perfect example it, he doesn't have a cabinet he doesn't have a politburo even like in China um there's nothing there's just him uh, the greatest example for that that really drove that understanding home for me was um when he had uh he had his uh the Russian security council or whatever meeting yep. Yeah. Um, that was televised uh, and they were all talking about how they need to recognize the um, independence of the uh, puppet authorities and which uh, until that point they'd never done because it made n- it doesn't make sense to recognize the independence of a puppet authority it's not an actual state mm-hmm. it's it's literally mm-hmm. just an occupational administration um run by like gangsters and security officers mm-hmm. it's not not an actual state um so when they when they were having this meeting and he called up I think you mentioned this the um, the head of their um, foreign uh, foreign intelligence service, uh, Narishkin, I think, is his name. Yeah. And Narishkin was like stammering. He looked like a schoolboy. Like he looked like a schoolboy being asked to like put an answer on the on the blackboard. You know. Um, he was terrified, and you could see this televised to the world. He was terrified of Putin. And this guy is again the head of Russian foreign intelligence. He's not like a, a diplomat or someone weak willed. Um, You can probably absolutely uh, bet that that man has personally tortured and killed people himself, and here he is, like, barely able to string a coherent sentence out of Putin. Um, And that just goes to show you how personalized this regime is. And when you have a regime this personalized, they're just not politically stable as a rule. Especially when their leaders get older, when they start thinking about, instead of purely pragmatic terms of how to consolidate power, hold power, give out tribute and everything, at this age, people typically start thinking about stuff like legacy. And this is not um, purely pragmatic consideration. This is not a purely rational um, account. This now goes into the territory of ideology and of belief Um, and... Putin is hitting that 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 kind of time. So a lot of the these like, quite frankly, fantastical expectations that the Russians had when they invaded Ukraine is all down to the fact that people still see Putin as a genius master strategist. Which uh, you don't become dictator of Russia by collecting bottle caps, at least not in the post-Soviet period. But at the same time, the guy's getting old. And he he want he's now thinking about stuff that isn't directly related to having and maintaining power. Um, he's pretty effectively coup-proofed himself. I was walking with um, my my um, podcast buddy Anthony Bartoway the other day, and we were talking about um, what Russia's succession plans look like. And there is none. Every single successor that has ever been pushed up is no like Medvedev is off the table. Um, any like Norishkin's off the table, everyone's off the table. Like if Putin dies tomorrow of, I don't know, a stroke. He's he's old, right? Any he could literally just die of not of natural causes, like inshallah. But if he does, who takes over? No one has the slightest clue. So of course, at this point, um Putin's making decisions that you that, that are not driven by practical considerations of geopolitics, and uh, so on, and, and power projection, but simply because he wants to be remembered as a great man who rebuilt Russia and restored it to greatness. Um, and any and, and when people look at Putin, they're not thinking of that. They're thinking of the guy that has connived and murdered and blackmailed and wormed his way into holding power for 20 plus years but that's not the Putin we see anymore. A great example of that was his very recent rally at the um, at a stadium in Moscow. Yeah. Now, this is something Putin would have never done. He is not that kind of guy. But here he is holding what is basically a Trump rally, yeah. like a, what basically is a fascist rally um, in the middle of Moscow in, you know, this coat. He's not even wearing a suit. He's wearing like a $10,000 Italian coat or something, um, yeah, like a like snappy it's like sweatshirt. A, it's
0: like an Italian brand or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, he's... And, and this is not something Putin has done ever before, ever before. Um, he is at this point of his life where he feels completely, like, comfortable in, in power. Of course, he's paranoid because he's a dictator. <laughs> you kind of have to be power- paranoid. Um, but at the same time, we see him, like, pressing to be transform in from this image of this... Um, Paternal technocratic leader that is trying to do what's best for his people and like uh, regulate the entire country so everyone has a comfortable life to this kind of charismatic, um, charismatic ideological guy when he's not that at all and he's never been that. Hmm. Um, and once people start grappling that you're not dealing with the rational, pragmatic Putin anymore, you're dealing with late stage. I don't know. Maybe you can call it like um, Putinism. what is it? Yeah, late stage Putinism, like his midlife crisis Putinism, I guess. Um, and that's a completely different person. Like, yeah, some people go out and buy sports cars when they hit a certain age, and some people turn into fascist ideologues. That's just the way the cookie crumbles.
0: I, th- yeah, this is an important point as well. Maybe we can just focus on this a sec because. Uh, I didn't know some of the. I knew some of it, but I didn't know all of the details. I didn't know his obsession with some of the past uh, Russian. What is it? I think Ivan the Terrible. He's obsessed with him. Uh, He kept on that speech that he gave, which is now notorious. uh, And I know that you went on Robert's uh, podcast uh, on "It Could Happen Here," I believe, to talk uh, about that as well. In that speech, uh, I I listened to just summaries of it and whatever. But um, the whole thinking Lenin basically blaming lenin for quote-unquote inventing ukraine um it's it it was just this weird thing where it's like pro-soviet or pro-concept of a union but not really a soviet basically a russian empire 2.0 and so sort of seeing himself in that legacy and the the more i looked into again the more i just did that obsessive reading that i've been mentioning there are a number in the Russian history, Russian imperial history specifically, a lot of leaders, uh, Tsars and so on, that have seen it as like the only aspect of their legacy that matters is to expand, is to take more territory. It, quite literally, it never ended for like ever, almost all of Russian imperial history. There was no, no Tsar that did not prove, had to prove uh, themselves by, you know, conquering more territory whatever. So in that line, he's sort of like following that. And usually, I don't bring up ancient, what should be ancient history or whatnot. But it's he, he's obsessed with it. He he talks about this all the time, that he has he has he sees himself as a historian. I would recommend people listening to this to check out the podcast, uh, the Ezra Klein podcast, which I have my issues with it. But he has a very good episode with Masha Gessen, which maybe we'll we'll manage to get uh, them on on this podcast. We'll see. But that episode, like. Marsha did a pretty good job at just trying to explain Putin's psychology on that spec. Again, I usually don't spend too much time on this. But on the, in this case, given that we are dealing with a pretty self-isolating, uh, self-isolated, uh, you know, megalomaniac, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's definitely worth uh, thinking about this. Well, given that you're obviously Ukrainian, from a Ukrainian perspective, how... and we Okay, we can link this up to this other thing that I want to talk about anyway which is that obviously we've seen the frustration and you have expressed it as well, towards sections of the left, blah, 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 Western left, etc. Which at this point, um, I've been ranting about this for like, I, I don't know, eight years maybe now. So I, I part of me doesn't even care as much, but I'm gonna do it anyway. And this miss, I've seen, so I'll try, and uh, usually I don't mention names by the way, because I don't like to give these people attention. And so I won't do that but I would mention certain trends, certain just common tropes and whatever. One is talking about Russia's neighbors in Eastern Europe as basically as if they don't really exist. You know, like actually agreeing that or accepting um, that Russia has, deserves, whatever, um, a buffer zone, right? Like we've actually heard that term a lot of time. Like, well, it's understandable that Russia is pissed off that whatever country joined nato or wants to join nato or whatever because well they will have nato on their borders as if those nations themselves don't get to decide anything anyway so that's like one common thing the other common thing i mean it's all ignorance anyway but there's pretty common the person who did not think about ukraine until five seconds after uh, the recent, the most recent all-out invasion and is suddenly an expert on Ukraine and one, or especially on Russia and thinks of Ukraine through that thinking on Russia etc and is is unable even after f- condemning openly let's say Putin's invasion even after putting either in between parentheses or whatever that this is bad and this is horrific and I don't support this and I don't condemn this unable to kind of just stop there like they kind of have to continue and say yes but had nato not done this had uh the americans not done this etc 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 which again goes back to eastern european countries not getting to decide what they want in the first place and okay so there's a lot more i'm gonna stop there i'm curious if you can if you can just give us your thoughts on this and maybe i'll just add a bit on that
1: yeah specifically i can i have obviously also been um struggling with this for for eight years of the the like specific questions of people that I would have I would otherwise have called comrades, just basically being cheerleaders for imperialism. Um, and the reason, I think, honestly, I think the reason comes down to the fact that, um, there was no reckoning with the Soviet Union's legacy um in the left. it, yeah. it that did not happen yeah. when occupy kind of revived the modern version of the western left. Um the Soviet Union was held up as like some kind of like ideal to aspire to almost. Um but here's the thing, the Soviet Union was always a continuation of the Russian Empire with a different color. Like that aspect of Russian chauvinism and Russian imperialism did not go anywhere when the Soviet Union started. And of course, Eastern Europeans um, caucus people, um, the Central Asians have always pointed this out. You'll find leftists in all of those countries always talking about no Soviet Union was always an imperial project. Baltic leftists will talk about this constantly. Um, but again, no, our voices don't matter because we're not the imperial core, <laughs> um, we're not literally Russians. Uh, so it doesn't matter what we say, we're just some weird. Degenerate offshoots Um, We don't actually have Our own opinions Because the only right opinion Comes from Moscow Um, And again because of that Because that legacy was never really reckoned with People didn't really go into Like When I was a baby leftist When I was like 12, 13 Whatever I started being politically aware And you know not liking the fact That there was poverty and homelessness In the United States um, and and like all the all the basic realizations that you have at that age that hey maybe there's there's something weird with our economic system that is producing these horrible horrible outcomes. Um, when I started like doing this, I was very historically aware as well because obviously you can't figure out why the the world is the way it is without looking at what caused it to be the way uh, it is. And because I had family in Ukraine, I would go to Ukraine every summer. I could talk to people here and ask them like is your life better now than under the Soviet union and of course basically everyone would always say yes and for for a while as a baby last this is kind of confusing i was like but look we have homeless people now like you you, you like can't buy anything we have this staggering inequality and be, be like and people would be like yes but also there's no secret police the corruption is just normal corruption it's not like institutionalized um we're not getting involved, especially for Ukraine, we're not getting involved in imperialist wars. Like the the it's it's uh the, the Soviet Afghan War basically um was one of the inciting factors of uh, the dissolution yeah. of the Soviet Union because so many people were getting their kids back in body bags for a war in a faraway place they had no idea why there was they had any involvement there at all. Um so I would go here and I'd talk to people and be like, well, yeah, but it was still really shitty. Like, yes, there were things that were kind of like nice, but otherwise, yes, it is better now that it's gone. But in the West, people without experience, to people who lived um, under communi- uh, under Soviet, I would say, uh, under Soviet rule, um, they, they don't have exposure to that. So they never really had to deal with the fact that the Soviet Union is really, really bad. Secret police are really bad. Um, being able to criticize your government is a really, really important right, actually. It is possibly more important than the actually having a home. Because at least if you can talk about your government, you can fix the problem that you don't have a home. But you can't fix the problem if you can't talk about the problem. If you're not allowed to criticize your government. this is very basic things um, that basically broke people's minds uh and as a result because they never dealt with that legacy uh they see russia now and they just kind of transposed this um moscow is the center of the the soviet union so you was this great beautiful thing that fell apart for no reason whatsoever maybe the cia had something to do with it um and y- you get there and now of course you you start supporting uh, literal klepto <laughs> klepto capitalist dictatorship because you never figured out that actually dictatorship is bad. Uh, freedom and liberty aren't just words to be abused by George Bush and neoconservatives. They mean good values that we should stand for. Um, but if you don't believe that, if your whole position is uh, is America bad and like, Soviet Union good, then, yeah, it does make sense that you would just uncritically um, support Russian propaganda, repeat BS lies, support literal, like, hyper-capitalist dictators like Assad. It it all kind of falls into place if you see that that transposition occurred, no one had to deal with it, and, well, voila. Um, I really hope that maybe after the just incredibly openly fashy symbolism and language used by russia maybe people will finally start to deal with that um but my hopes are not high
0: no mine mine are not either (laughs) uh this actually brings me to the third point that was i was bringing up. it's a good segue of this whole russia is like the whole denazification and blah 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 all of that although so okay not a lot of people i would say are openly apologetic of that specifically but A lot of people, I do think, have bought into it, at least to some degree. And what's incredible about this, well, a couple of things, other than it's bullshit, which is, you know, level one of kind of, you know, debunking, disinformation, whatever. Other than that, a couple of things. One, it's kind of ironic to me for anyone who is in the West to talk about Nazis anywhere else. Like, for me, just in general. I i have yeah. uh, family connections to italy my wife's italian i've lived in the uk i know a lot about america just because you kind of have to uh, <laughs> you kind of have to, kind of have to. <laughs> uh and i i know a decent bit on france and germany every single one of those examples have a shit ton more nazis pretty openly at this point even in government I they're in germany the, the Italians have literal neo-fascists who are MEPs, like member of the European Parliament, who do the lit we have members, I forgot who, I think it was a Is Balkan- it Mussolini's
1: granddaughter an MEP?
0: Yes, 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 Mussolini. Yeah, her name's still Mussolini. <laughs> uh, Mussolini himself has uh, his mausoleum, is still in Italy. You can still visit it. You can do whatever the fuck. It's completely normal. You can go to places, although it's supposed to be taboo, but you still can find calendars in like the average kiosk with Mus- Like those, and you have Franco supporters still openly uh, vox in Spain, etc., etc. I can go on and on and on about this. Obviously, the French elections are like very soon, and you have two far right candidates—not just, I mean, you have more than two, but you have two main far right candidates, Le Pen and Zemmour, who are either either Holocaust deniers or soft Holocaust deniers or pro-Pétain, or you have all of those things happening. And I mean, I'm not even bringing you up January. Don't forget 6. the. Sorry.
1: Yeah. Don't forget the incompetent fascist ideologue that was literally president of the the world's sole hyperpower.
0: That's what for I'm saying. I was gonna say like not even to mention January 6, not to mention QAnon, not to mention like the batshit crazy shit that's still happening. But and no, it's off That's the problem. Yes, it's of That's the problem. And that. Yeah. So I'll ask you to 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 talk about that in general. But okay, even even putting that. Hypocrisy aside, which we shouldn't, but just for a second, Russia is like arguably their main uh, promoter of far right shit around the world right now. Every almost every single far right European uh, political party from... and the, North American, sorry, and North American and North American have had some links. Have been either photographed with Putin himself himself or have gotten money from the Russians, like from Farage to Le Pen, for example. Orban is pretty known for this as well. Like, it's incredible to me. And just the fact that, given that uh, from Putin's very obsessive homophobia to the, 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 the far-right patriarch saying batshit stuff like a week ago, to all of those different things, the male state, as they call it, which is this far-right pro-Russia group, so many other things. And people listening can check out Bellingcat. They've been doing a lot of good work on this, and other people as well have. There's just so many different things that if if your priority is Antifa and being anti-fascist, it's like, how more obvious. As I said, like it's like one brushstroke away. Like, they're very close to just saying we are and that's it. But... They can say it, and this maybe confuses a lot of people, so maybe we can talk about this. For the most part, they cannot say, hey, we are Nazis, because of the specific Nazi v. Soviet Union history in World War II, because of the legacy of all of this. They cannot use those specific terms, but they can use everything around it, like calling, as you said, like a Jewish president a Nazi, etc., etc. What can you tell us about this that isn't just me rambling about these things over and over again?
1: Um, I mean, the rambling's fine, but... More specifically, I think there is this misunderstanding of how um the post-Soviet states view World War II and uh specifically Nazism. Yeah. Um I think that in the West it was framed as a struggle for freedom and democracy versus um like a horrible, like horrible uh discriminatory uh end right this like it was it was very much framed in this like way that we're we're defending our freedoms or whatever but obviously in the 40s and not get corrupted by neocon bullshit um however in the soviet union it could not be framed this way because again the soviet union was not free it did not have democracy and all of the values that the western Uh, propagandists used to drum up um, morale for the war effort was not applicable, because it could, if you propagandized about that in the Soviet Union, people would start really wondering why the Soviet Union was oh so similar to Nazi Germany. Um, And it was in a lot of ways. The levels of social control were not different when um, East Germany was established, when the GDR was established. Um like the stasi were literally gestapo like zero difference is the same exact operational thing in fact social control intensified in east germany um after its uh liberation from the nazis so you you can imagine that this typical uh ideological basis of of this conflict between uh the civilized world and fascism it doesn't exist in the Soviet Union, the conflict was specifically because they came to kill us and take our land. That's what we fought against. We didn't fight for some ideological basis. The Holocaust was minimized um, to the extent that Soviet Jews still have trouble talking about the Holocaust in the ways that we are used to Holocaust survivors talking about it in the West. In, I mean, in terms I mean of Stalin literally,
0: literally uh, persecuted survivors.
1: Yes, Exactly. Um, so, the Soviet so Soviet opposition to fascism was not opposition to ideological fascism; it was opposition to an invading power. Uh, it is why, for example, Ukrainian Ukrainians have been so good at taking that language back to apply to the Russians now, because we literally are again being invaded by a fascist power—the second time in seventy years. Um, and it's why we can appropriate this Soviet terminology so easily and win pro- propaganda battles with it, because again, that is what l- is literally happening. Um, so when people like hear words like denazification or um, anti-fascism coming from the Russian side, they are not talking about what we in the West consider to be um, denazification or anti-fascism. They're specifically talking about taking their land back. Um, coming from Russia that means they are specifically talking about killing Ukrainians and taking that land back for Russia. Uh, That's... uh, And once you understand that framing, you start seeing how really worrying that kind of uh, language is. And of course, when the West... And and of course, most Westerners, and not just on the left, just in general, don't see that. They don't understand that. They just see the same words being used. Um, And... For them, you know, anti-fascism, anti-fascism, denazification, Nazis are bad, whatever. Uh so they they don't really get that Russians are not talking about a concept at all similar to us. Uh and obviously this means that people will buy into this kind of rhetoric, not realizing that it is in practice being used to imply the exact opposite of what uh of what you would typically associate with. Uh, terms like anti-fascism or denazification or whatever it is. Um, and you, you get to this weird point where, yeah, you now have like people who say, oh, you know, we, we don't like fascists, like, fuck Azov. But, yeah, the, the Russians, they just want to get rid of Azov. That's, that's all they're doing. That's why they, they have to, like, kill half a million people. Because they just want to kill a single regiment already in combat with them, um, that consists of a maximum of a thousand people. Great job. Great logical train. But again, it is a mistake that I can see why people make that because they are not aware of how different the these terms are interpreted in the post-Soviet world.
0: Yeah, so the the kind of interesting thing here, probably also the depressing thing here, is that also coming from uh, coming from the Middle East and specifically someone who's been Syria obsessed for quite some time now. The parallel there is that uh, Hafez al-Assad's regime, so the father of Bashar, also inherited, well, he was an ally with the Soviet Union at, at one point and towards the late 80s specifically. Oh, that's kind of more complicated than that. But that was that. That's why you have a Russian base that's still in Syria. That's why, you know, that's part of the legacy there. Uh, so there's that. But the, the link here, the reason why I brought that up, is because it brings back, again, what we were saying at the beginning of... a a country's history sort of being summarized to fit and simplified and bastardized even to fit a a certain narrative that necessitates ignoring local voices like you have to ignore Syrians if this is the story that you want to have about Syria if if you still think that the Syrian regime is a state socialist regime or what have you you have to sort of ignore the neoliberal phase and the privatization, the fact that there are literal billionaires that are running the show. You have to ignore all of that, just as you have to do it with Russia as well. The reason why I was saying that one thing that's still baffling me is that I would sort of, not understand, but I would, okay, adapt that um, understanding if you want to try. Okay, well, maybe this is what the interpretation is. If Putin was making an effort to sound communist or socialist Or whatever and he's not even doing that he's just he has the way he talks is very textbook right wing far right etc etc and so there isn't even that effort if you want to try and cater quote unquote to a western audience and this is something that a lot of people i think still don't don't understand that there is a there is this propaganda this this disinformation that's for a foreign audience but there's also the one that's for a domestic audience and from what we've been seeing The polls that I've seen, a lot of Russians still don't believe that there is a war. They still call it the special operation. Support for it as a consequences of that, no doubt, is still relatively high or higher than it should be for sure. Uh, a lot of people are probably just shrugging their shoulders because they don't know that what's happening or they don't want to know what's happening or they don't they just don't want to think about it. Or they're
1: uh, the problem is now that they, they view themselves as being victimized by the West. So all of their conspiratorial um, beliefs that the, the West has plotted the downfall of Russia right now because of the sanctions, which are being applied as, as a result of the invasion. But of course, they don't believe in invasion, right? So for them, all of this is just justifying this already pre-existing um, victim conflicts that the West is punishing Russia for just um, trying to restore its own restore the, its own country.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just, I, I thought of this, there was this Russian, uh, I think he was like some kind of academic who was interviewed, uh, so he is in Russia, he's not just a Russian academic, he's a Russian academic in Russia, who was interviewed on some British uh, outlet. And at some point, uh, he he basically did what aboutism. He said, "What about the U.S. invasion of Iraq?" And the, the the reporter said, "Well, this was clearly a bad thing to do as well, and many people recognize this, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. I'm not gonna justify the journalist. That's not the point. But his his um, response, like the Russian academics' response, is that of course. So he asked, "Like, does it does the crimes of the West? I think the question was like this: justify." what russia is doing in ukraine and the russian academy replied of course it does of course it does because that's what great empires do or great powers i forgot which terms he used and like that's as explicit as it gets there is the sense and I, i've learned this from mash i guess and from peter Pomeranzov, who i interviewed who we might interview again uh in the context of this series that there is the sense that we are we call the russians are a great empire. Uh, we should be treated as a great empire or a great power. They usually don't say empire, they would say power. And anything less than that is in and of itself justification for all of the rest. I don't know, this seems to me like one of the obvious uh, thread lines here that some people still don't understand, I feel.
1: So, I want to, like, distinguish a couple of things here. First off is... As you said, there's domestic propaganda, um, and there's propaganda intended for for a Western audience. But there is also propaganda intended for specific segments of um, the world, like propaganda that is crafted to appeal to some groups and not others. Um, And we touched on this lightly with with Putin funding, um, like all the basically every far right movement in that we've seen in the world in the past ten years you can, if you follow the money back, you'll find some Russian connection there somewhere. Um, but as far as I can tell, something not too dissimilar has happened with a lot of the left as well. Um, there are a lot of, and this is especially visible through the media environment. Um, like, RT is an obvious one. Like, everyone knows RT is an, a Russian propaganda outlet now, but you'll still see. Um, I I I was in a... Um, DSA chat until very recently um where the admin would just keep posting content and i, I and the the admin there would keep posting redfish content and i was like stop posting this this imperial propaganda resource and they're like oh but they do good work like reporting on on like leftist issues in south america which that might be the case but the voice of america does great work reporting on like freedom of speech and gay rights issues in Eastern Europe. Like, but uh, that's a CIA shill and Redfish is okay. And considering that both outlets are run by capitalist governments, <laughs> um, the only difference is that one is has successfully pandered to the left and one hasn't. Um, and that media environment is very... Has developed very strongly over the past um, over the past like decade or so, at least since Occupy, when uh, people started like getting their news from these resources, and then you've seen that um, continue into kind of pretty high level uh, cooperation between um, the like leftist figures, public figures, and and the Russian government, uh, like Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate. Um, in a recent U.S. election, was at a was photographed at a dinner with, um, with Putin himself, and and that was apparently considered completely fine. Um, mm-hmm. but if you'd imagine that the same picture would have been, I mean, people deny that Stalin signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, so. That kind of goes into a historical, <laughs> a historical denial of red brownism, um, but I think that's that's a topic for a different podcast.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's something that I've brought up as well a few times, but the what, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because the follow up question, maybe sort of wrapping up, because I've taken a few time already, um, is what what should people who are listening to this, who like they don't want to they don't want to fall into these traps, they're doing their best, you know, whatever. What what do you think they can do uh, right now? Uh, the, obviously, I guess it would depend on where they live, but in terms of actions uh, to support uh, the Ukrainian resistance, like what are certain things that you think are good to do?
1: A um, couple of different things. First off, I uh, I really implore all of your listeners to, and I hope they they're not doing this, but if they are consuming any kind of Russian media or anything, stop. <laughs> you can you can get. News from Ukraine, which I guarantee is not CIA propaganda, as far as I'm able to tell, um, from, like, from Ukraine. Keep independent, the new voice. Uh, there's, there's like, plenty of sources in English that you can read about Ukraine without having to get it filtered through, through um, imperialist uh, bullcrap. Uh, and another thing, and this is especially to people living in democratic countries, especially if you live in Germany, or Switzerland, or the United States, is uh, press your elected representatives. And I know like writing a letter to your senator doesn't sound exciting or meaningful, but um, it does show incredible support. It's it's a more concrete gesture than hanging a Ukrainian flag outside your window, which is great. You should also do that. But something concrete call these people let them know that you do not want to you do not want to do business with Russia you don't want anyone in your country to do business with Russia. you want better conditions for Ukrainian refugees for all refugees generally speaking um, and you want uh, to see them take a stronger stance Ukraine because again we're, we're literally fighting a fascist dictator. I don't know how more morally black and white this situation can get um there's the it's really hard to to like equivocate here we're not nazis (laughs) the other side are literally using a symbol that is one stroke off a swastika (laughs) so you know the question of are we the baddies doesn't come up here we're we're pretty sure we're we're the good guys um in fact we're we're positive
0: thanks for that Romeo. okay um final thoughts on your part anything that i didn't ask you know that sort of thing and we'll just we'll just wrap it up on that i will mention uh, before you do that that's okay i mentioned it briefly in the beginning but i'll say it again now that this was, basically this will be episode two of what i'm uh, very uncreatively calling the ukraine series uh there will probably be i think 10 or no, maybe it dozen. not i'm not too sure in total we'll see how it goes Uh, episodes of uh, this type you will co-host a number of them if not all of them we'll have uh, guests uh, from well a bit from a bit everywhere mostly ukrainians but uh, a bit from the region who are able to speak to uh, a specific thing like let's say the ethnic minorities in russia being used as uh, uh, cannon fodder might be a topic we'll see there will be different of different angles to take we'll see but yeah i just so i just wanted to mention that the first one as i said was with leila shami uh that was kind of like a syrian view of what's happening in ukraine uh and then we'll see where where to take it from from there and this would be episode two as i said so yeah any final thoughts on your part um not really
1: don't don't fall for nazi propaganda (laughs) i think that's a good final thought i mean like really it's it's hard to stress just how pretty openly fascist russia is and um like uh, like the ukrainians are now we, we're always calling the russians fascists well quite literally they are when you start talking about the purity of the russian people and like you treat ukrainians as like subhumans that are not fit to live and then you try to invade them and take their land kick out their like ruling structures and put in foreigners in place um Claiming that th- you guys are historically the same, which doesn't track with us being subhuman, but the Russians somehow made that work. Yeah. Um,
0: just don't don't fall for it. Dear listeners, do not fall for fascist propaganda. <laughs>
1: that is that is a very strong message. I would really like everyone to to really internalize. You know.
0: Yeah. Okay, Romeo, uh, do you mention again uh, where they can find you online, website, podcast, that sort of thing, and we'll leave it at that for now.
1: Sure. You can find me um, on Twitter at Vagrant Journo, and you can listen to my podcast, Ukraine Without Hype, at uh, basically any podcast platform that you prefer. Uh, and you can also find the episodes on Twitter at, at Hype Ukraine.
0: Amazing. Well, Romeo, thanks a lot for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for yours, man
0: the fire these times is hosted by myself joey ayub i am also its producer researcher writer and sound editor if you want to help turn this project into a full-time job please head out to patreon.com slash fire these times to support it these episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources a newsletter and eventually youtube video essays as well as always thank you for listening and take care